you've got Nature's Edge on the air. I'm Dale Stewart. America's largest wetland community located in coastal Louisiana is losing its marshes and swamps to the Gulf of Mexico. The wetlands are being converted to open water at an alarming wet rate, largely as a result of maintaining shipping lanes, dredging of canals, flood control levees, and the withdrawal of oil and gas. If current trends continue, an ecosystem that supports the nation's oldest bilingual culture and 25% of the nation's fishing industry will be mostly lost by the next century. Our guest today on Nature's Edge lives and works in Terrio, a wetland community in South Louisiana. She's going to speak uh, to us firsthand about the trends affecting her and others' way of life in the Bayou wetlands. Captain Wendy, also known by many as the Bayou Woman, is a U.S. Coast Guard licensed captain and owner of Wetland Tour and Guide Services in Camp Dulage, located in Terrio, Louisiana. She offers educational wetland eco-tours and fishing charters for families and women alike. Combining all her resources and knowledge, her favorite events are her Bayou Women Adventures for small groups of women who want to learn more about being in the great outdoors. She has become known for her blog, Bayou Women, Life in the Louisiana Wetlands, as a tour guide, freelance writer, photographer, and radio TV show guest, she is fast becoming a household name on the outdoor scene. Bayou Woman, welcome to Nature's Edge. Hey, Dale. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you. I got my first question is pretty simple. Are the inland speckled trout biting yet, or is it still a little early? It's still a little early. We had that long, cold winter down here, untypical for us, so... Everything's about a month late, so right now the trout are kind of elusive. I'm, I'm not hearing really good reports, but uh, any day now they will start migrating inward, inland, and uh, probably by, I don't know, first week, second week of October, we ought to be able to find them in the inland lakes. Well, that sounds like a good time for me to visit you again, yep. come, come down and, and do that. Uh, Wendy, tell our listeners who the Bayou Woman is. Well, the Bayou Woman, you know, at first I want to say I'm a I'm an import, I'm a transplant, but I am originally from North Louisiana, and uh, I moved down to South Louisiana in 1978 and went to work in the oil field. And uh, I think I was probably one of the first women in the oil field back in the day, and I worked seven and seven. But I just fell in love with the area um, down South Louisiana, Southern Terrebonne Parish. Terrebonne is uh, French for good earth, and it's sort of ironic that we really don't have a whole lot of good earth left we, we i think maybe we should rename the parish to rare earth mm. and we joked about that the other day but it's kind of bittersweet but um you know i i early on i met some native people here homa indians and we became friends and i ended up working with uh, one in particular and ended up marrying and staying here and and i've just really really connected with the people you know the culture and the way of life of the Bayou communities. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an amazing place. And of course, most of my listeners know I'm I'm also a native of Louisiana, and uh, this is a very special, very special place to me. Um, when you tell me a little bit, you wrote a um, you wrote a, a children's book. Before we get into other things, uh, tell me a little bit about before the saltwater came. 
Well, you know, um, I raised five children here, and as the last one started to get older, I just really started thinking, you know, what I can do with my time. And, and really, I've watched about 30 years of wetland loss here in the community, having worked on uh, offshore crew boats. You know, I rode from Dulac out to the Gulf and back many years ago and saw how things were and how things were changing and how they had become. And I saw a, a real need for educational awareness, awareness about our plight here, our wetland loss. And so um, that was my first attempt at educating people in a very simple way. The book is called Before the Saltwater Came. And I chose a children's picture book format because it was an easy way for people to understand one of the major causes, which is saltwater intrusion. And so in a children's picture book, you have an, you know, an elder child reading it to a younger child or a parent reading it to a child or a grandparent. And that way, I reached everybody with that message. Yeah, and, and what's the name of the, uh, the main uh, little critter that you use to tell the story? Well, I, the main character is an old otter, and her name is La Lutte, which is the word we use down here, the, the bayou word, French word for otter. And I also chose an otter, one, because, you know, they're, they're really playful and they're fun to watch, but they can live about a 30-year lifespan. And the, the book covers about a 30-year span of wetland loss that I've seen. So it begins in her life when she was a little otter and how things were, in the marsh and the swamp when she was growing up and how they've become. And now as an elderly otter, she's telling the story of how things used to be in coastal Louisiana before the saltwater came. Is the, is the book still in publication? The book is not in print right now, but we're in the process of making it an e-book. And we may be doing something with a reprint possibly on demand. Well, that would be great I, because I can tell um, tell my listeners, uh, especially the ones that have uh, have children, this is a great book, uh, uh, both to educate about the plight that's going on in the wetlands of South Louisiana, and just introducing uh, kids to, uh, uh, to to conservation and preservation as well. So, let us know uh, by you woman when that uh, when that happens and when it's available, and we will make people aware of that. Well, what I can do is invite your listeners to visit BayouWoman.com, and when it becomes available as an ebook, it will be um, for purchase directly from the website at BayouWoman.com. And not only that, it's a great resource, and, and we can get into that if you want, for learning more about life in the Louisiana wetlands. Yeah, why don't you just, uh, we've got about two minutes left in this segment. Why don't you talk a little bit about how, how it is uh uh, important in that way? Uh, well, you know, blogging became popular maybe, oh, in the early 2000s. And in about 2007, I was encouraged to use that as another way to reach out to the whole wide world, you know, the World Wide Web. And it's one more avenue to use to educate people about our life, you know, culture, way of life. And because I spend a lot of time on the water, I take a lot of photographs. It was just a great place for me to incorporate um, the photographs of everyday life, you know, no matter whether we're touring or fishing or watching alligators or whatever, and weave those into stories that I could put on the blog for people to just read and become more acquainted with and just more aware of 
the way of life down here, which is directly tied to the wetlands in which we live. And oftentimes, when you say South Louisiana, people think about Cajuns. Well, we're more than Cajuns here because we have a lot of different cultures that have melted together. And um, I like to say that we're Bayou people. We're not just Cajun people. We're Bayou people. And that encompasses, you know, quite a few different cultures and customs that have all come together. And in their different ways, we live off the wetlands, whether it's uh, shrimping, crabbing, fishing for oysters, or, you know, just recreational fishing or throwing a cast net. All those things are part of Bayou life. Wendy, do, do is French still a predominant language down there? I'm not going to say that in the younger people it is predominant, because about the youngest person I know who speaks um, the French language, and when I say when I say Bayou French, it's a combination for the most part of French and some Indian words, because it is still spoken among the Homa Indians, but probably just those. 45 years and up, and it is still their first language, um, what I call their heart language, because when they speak among themselves, that's the language that they use, their version of French. Yes, I've noticed that. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge. Our special guest is Captain Wendy, also known as the Bayou Woman. And when we come back, uh, Bayou Woman, we're going to talk about the, uh, the environmental issues facing the wetlands of coastal Louisiana such as erosion, and uh, continue our discussion on the saltwater intrusion. This is Dale Stewart, and we shall return. This is Dale Stewart, and welcome back to Nature's Edge. Our special guest today is Captain Wendy, better known and becoming better known as the Bayou Woman. And before the break, we were just talking, starting to talk about some of the environmental issues facing the wetlands of coastal Louisiana, such as erosion and and saltwater intrusion. And Wendy, I'd just like you to to talk to our listeners a little bit about uh, what's going on down there. What what is uh, what's happening to uh, to the to our beloved wetlands of South Louisiana? Well, first off, I think it's significant that we recognize that we have a national estuary system here, the Terrebonne uh, Basin Estuary System, and it is probably um, one of the most rapidly disappearing wetlands in the nation, if not in the world. And by I guess by time. I would like to clarify that this delta here was built up by the Mississippi River over thousands of years of flooding. And so in the scheme of things, coastal Louisiana is relatively new land, comparatively speaking. And so in the 19, probably 20s, when the Mississippi River was finally levied and dammed all the way, you know, down to New Orleans, that seasonal flooding stopped. And so this new delta land was no longer being built up by the seasonal flooding in the Mississippi River. So naturally, uh, the natural process of subsidence began right away just because of the way nature works. But people ask me, well, what's the big deal? So y'all are losing wetlands. Well, uh, coastal Louisiana's lost 
about 1,900 square miles, about the, I don't know, the size of the state of Delaware, to uh, many different, you know, causes. There are seven major causes. I won't go into that. But over time, we've lost 1,900 square miles of coastal Louisiana. And it's a big deal because coastal Louisiana has five major shipping ports. 30% of the nation's oil and gas is either drilled here, produced here, or flows through here through a pipeline system. That's significant to fueling this nation. And the other thing is we provide about 30% of the nation's seafood. So, you know, if you like to eat seafood, you might want to sit up and pay attention. And it's a really sad thing that the majority of the nation, and maybe even people in North Louisiana, don't even realize that this is going on every day to the tune of about a football field every 45 minutes of coastal Louisiana washes into the Gulf or about 25 square miles a year. If you let those numbers soak in, it's staggering to think about it. Just in the time that it takes to listen to this radio show, we've lost another football field. And there are lots of things that are causing that. Um, You know, at one time, South Louisiana was just considered um, this uninhabitable wasteland where, you know, only Native Americans lived or the Acadians who were exiled and ended up down here. This was considered a wasteland. Nobody really cared about South Louisiana until oil and gas was discovered. And when inland oil and gas was discovered, not to be confused with the big rigs out in the Gulf of Mexico, we're talking about oil and gas in the marshlands, that is when major destruction began. Because in order to get into those marsh fields and drill for oil and gas, they had to cut canals. You know, they tried going across the marsh initially. It was too costly, too ineffective. And somebody had the great idea, well, let's just dig canals and let's design these floating drilling rigs or drilling barges, and that's what happened. And so we have, you know, tens of thousands of miles of canals that are cut through our marshlands, and what that does is it interrupts the daily tide flow across the marsh. Those marshes are dependent upon that incoming tide every day to bring in nutrients, and that falling tide takes the toxins out. And when you cut a canal through the marsh, you're stopping that natural flow of that tide that is so, so crucial for healthy marsh. And the next question they ask me is, well, why is that such a big deal? Why is marsh such a big deal? Marsh was our natural barrier, you know, one of our first lines of defense against storm surge that comes with hurricanes. When hurricanes spin out there in the Gulf of Mexico, storm surge, big waves from the Gulf are pushed inland. And what that healthy marsh did was protect us from flooding. You know, the Native Americans here and the French immigrants and the Cajuns did not settle in a flood zone. They settled on the high ridges of land that follow the long bayous that run south toward the Gulf of Mexico. And little by little, as that marsh has been washed away, killed, deteriorated, and vanished, we are left wide open to storm surge. We no longer have that protective barrier because the marsh actually would reduce, absorb a storm surge as it passed over. And I live about 21 miles from the actual gulf, and my home should be able to withstand a seven-foot tidal surge. It should have been 
you know, under the best circumstances and was at one time. We haven't always flooded. Those storm surges, seven foot or under, were absorbed before they got to our homes, and we never flooded. And now for a nine-foot surge, because there is no natural protective barrier, we get about five feet of standing water here where we live. And as a result of that, uh, didn't FEMA come in there and require you guys to lift your houses up so many feet? It came to the point. Um, we Our first flood was in 1985 with Hurricane Juan and not again until 1992 with Hurricane Andrew, at which point the little formula and scenario was handed down that if your home uh, had 50% damage and had flooded two times that you were not allowed to make repairs to your home unless you elevated above the floodplain. In some places, that's 10 feet up. In other places, and you know, lower ground, it's 12 and 14 feet up. And so, yes, if you, you know, wanted to repair your home, you know, legally by the parish code, you really weren't supposed to be able to pull a permit to do that unless you elevated, and many, many people have. Yeah, and, and for my listeners that aren't aware, when she says parish, uh, Louisiana has parishes, not counties. Uh, that goes back to the, uh, I guess, back to some of the early French, uh, French rule down there. Wendy, what about flood insurance? Uh, can you get it? Or are you required to have it, uh, uh, particularly, I guess, on a, on a new home mortgage or something? On a new home mortgage, it's... It, it's through the roof, and, and really, after, um, let me clarify for our listeners, that in 2005, we had a double whammy with Hurricane Katrina, and less than a month later, Hurricane Rita. Right. Hurricane Rita, you hear about Katrina in relation to New Orleans. We are west of New Orleans, about 60 miles or so southwest, and so for Rita, we got the high water. And then again in 2008, same thing, double whammy, Gustav and Ike. Rita and Ike were storms that made landfall almost on the coast of Texas, yet those storms put a nine-foot surge up in here. So if before that you were fortunate enough to have had flood insurance, you were sitting pretty well because connected to that would have been an increased cost of compliance policy that would have helped you with some funding to elevate your home. And at that point, when you elevate, your rates do go down. But after those series of storms, insurance companies drop people, not only for flood, not for flood insurance, but for homeowners insurance, we couldn't get it. Very, very difficult to even get homeowners, much less to get one on any kind of new construction, because quite honestly, they're taking a risk. But not only that, FEMA doesn't really want people building new construction down here. They just really don't. It's too much of a risk. And... Um, the national flood policy, it is a national flood insurance program. That's how we're still able to buy it. But if you're still on the ground or a couple feet off the ground, the only example I can give you is that the last policy I bought before we elevated, uh, we had $15,000 of coverage in flood insurance, and the premium was, annual premium was $3,000. Yeah, that's, that's pretty amazing. Uh Wendy, we're coming up on a break, and uh, you're listening to Nature's Edge with Dale Stewart, and we will be back with the Bayou Woman and continue our discussion on environmental issues facing the wetlands of coastal Louisiana. 
Welcome back. This is Dale Stewart, and you're listening to Nature's Edge. Our special guest today is the Bayou Woman, also known as Captain Wendy, or Captain Wendy, also known as the Bayou Woman. And and uh, uh, we were talking about environmental issues uh, that, that are facing wetlands of coastal Louisiana, such as erosion and saltwater intrusion. And, and uh, Bayou Woman, you were telling us a little bit about what's going on, and, and you can continue that discussion. But I also want you to discuss a little bit about... Uh, uh, the people and and how this is impacting the men, women, and children of of the wetlands down there, and also uh, you might can answer this. Leslie asked me a question. She said, "Is is living in the wetlands of of South Louisiana different um, than than living in other other places here in the United States?" So, take it away. Okay. Well, when uh, when we finished a moment ago, I was talking about um, infrastructure and mostly about our homes. And I just want to wrap that up by saying that my heart really is with the, with the older people in our communities that, you know, really don't want to pick up and relocate. And they don't have flood insurance, so they don't get any aid elevating their homes. You know, they're sitting ducks. They're a foot or two off the ground. They really don't want to relocate everything that they know is here. So, you know, I really think about them when I think in terms of uh, our homes and flooding and and what can be done. And maybe one day I can come up with some way to help those folks. But but for now, you know, I really think about them every hurricane season as we are in now because we live in a mandatory evacuation zone. You really don't have any choice in the matter. They want everybody out. But what happens in our communities and the reason that we stay here is because, I mentioned earlier, the lives are tied directly to the wetlands because the majority of the people who stay, stay because they are third, fourth, fifth generation commercial fishermen. And by that, fishermen include uh, oystermen that go out on their oyster boats and, and call for oysters. We have shrimp boats both smaller inland shrimping boats and then the larger shrimp boats that go in the Gulf of Mexico. We know they all come in and out of here. They dock right in front of their homes. And then we have crabbers who go in and out every day uh, checking their blue crab traps. And as that coastal marsh area erodes and washes away, it changes the habitat for that marine life because the marsh is a nursery ground for all of those species. It's where they uh, come in, they hatch, they attach, and they eat until they grow large enough to go out into the gulf and spawn and then come back in as the cycle continues. And so as that marsh erodes away, it impacts that marine life, which in turn impacts the livelihood of these fishermen. And really, honestly, they can't just pick up and go do what they do anywhere else in the nation because we know that you know Chesapeake Bay can't support any more fishermen than what they already have. You know, they have their own problems. Yeah. So so that's another way that they're impacted is their very livelihoods and and we have less shrimpers now. In two thousand ten we had the uh Deepwater Horizon explosion, the then the ensuing BP oil spill which shut the waters down, and quite a few shrimpers just didn't even recover from that because they were out of work for so long 
they couldn't pay their bills. And so for sale signs went up everywhere on the shrimp boat. Granted, that's not wetland loss, but that's still another environmental factor, a man-made you know, impact on the environment here that is always a risk. You know, you never know when that might happen in the Gulf of Mexico and when your coastline might be impacted. Absolutely. You know, I think it would also, uh, I think people would be amazed uh, to realize that a lot of the blue crab that people eat up in the Baltimore-Chesapeake Bay area are, are Louisiana blue crab, correct? That's correct, and, and they may or may not be aware of it, but the um, a big portion, a big percentage of the blue crabs that are fished in coastal Louisiana are shipped directly to Maryland. They certainly are, and they may very well be sold as Chesapeake Bay blue crab, but they're not. They're from down south. Yeah, I know. I was in. Uh, I was just in Baltimore the first of the week uh, at some meetings up there, and and I was having uh, blue crab that night. And and uh, in the back of my mind, I said, I wonder if this is Louisiana blue crab that I'm uh, that I'm eating. It was it was kind of funny. Uh, Wendy, let's talk a little bit. I mean, you've been touching on the people, but. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm very interested in because people don't talk about the impact of of, uh, of environmental issues. They always talk about what happens to the plants and the wildlife and the animals, but it really impacts the men, women, and children that live there in those wetlands as well. Correct? Yes, and a big part of that reason is again, not only are they commercial fishermen, but they many of them still have a subsistence living. So not only are they providing for their families by the catch that they sell, they're also feeding their families. And a shrimper might do both. He may shrimp and he may crab. It just depends on what the season is and what's more bountiful. It's nothing to say that a crabber can't pull it, bring his boat in and put shrimp nets on it. It happens all the time. And so they're providing in more than one way for their families. And this is very simplified. But this has impacted me. And another thing is that the people here live by the seasons, and so they typically have a spring garden and a fall garden. Right. But when you have a high water situation that is salt water, and your garden is wiped out, and your soil your soil is inundated with salt water for long periods of time, and so to maintain that family garden becomes a real challenge. And, you know, these, these are people who are hard workers. They're very family-oriented, and they really do want to supply as much as they can for their families themselves. I mean, the closest store is probably 25 miles away. Yes. We don't have a grocery store here. Yeah. Now, we may have a little quick stop, but all you're going to get is, you know, canned goods and, and maybe a carton of milk. But as far as fresh produce, we don't have any of that around here. Um, another thing is people here grow citrus. They yes. grow satsumas and oranges, and, and they depend on those things. You know, we just talked about, uh, on the break, we talked about alligator season. It yes. is alligator hunting season. And someone said to me, well, I find that very sad. You know, you're killing those prehistoric creatures. Well, the thing is, Louisiana has such an amazing uh, replenishment program that we have an overabundance of alligators. But but to me, yes, animals are important, but these people, for generations, in the fall, the controlled alligator harvest season is the way they made their money for the winter. Yeah, and it's a part of their culture. I mean, it, it's, it is. It is a big part of a culture. You know, you met a friend of mine who 
continues to do that. He doesn't do it for the money. The price this year for per foot is only $35 a foot. By the time you buy your poles and your line and your hooks and your bait and you pay the gasoline to go out every day for a week or two to fill your tags, you're really not making a whole lot of money. But they continue to do it because it is part of their heritage and not just Native American heritage, Bayou people heritage. But they counted on that income to feed their families for the winter. Yeah, they sure do. And and this is Dale Stewart. We're talking to the Bayou woman, and we were fixing to uh, be upon a break. And when we come back, uh, uh, Wendy, we're going to talk about uh, uh, continue our conversation here. And I may get you, you've, you've mentioned the Homa Indians to us a number of times. And uh, I know, of course, I'm very aware of them, uh, but I know there are people that uh, have said some things to me like, we didn't know there were Indians in the wetlands of Louisiana. They, When they think of Indians in wetlands, they generally think of the Seminole over in Florida. So we're going to talk about that a little more when we come back. This is Dale Stewart. You're listening to Nature's Edge. have returned this is dale stewart and you're listening to nature's edge uh, with my special guest today the bayou woman uh, bayou woman lives in in uh, terrio louisiana i'm saying that right correct uh, yes, Wendy? Terio? you are yeah you know That's i've been i've been gone from down there for a while i show up down there occasionally and uh, and really i'm gonna get down there even more but we were we were talking a little bit about the impact of the on the men, women, and children down there, and, and several times you've mentioned the Homa Indians, and of course I'm very familiar with the Homa Indians, but um, a lot of our listeners aren't really aware of the Homa Indians and don't really know that they, uh, uh, they're a group of people that have, have been in the wetlands of South Louisiana for quite a while, right? They have been here for a very long time, and my understanding is they originally were settled around the Baton Rouge area. And I'm not sure historically everything that happened, but they, little by little, they migrated south and south and south, and they ended up settling in the areas of Bayou Lafourche, which is east of here, uh, and then Bayou Terrebonne, and, of course, all the little distributaries, which are all bayous now of the Mississippi River. And, you know, like smart people, they settled on those high ridges of land that ran along the bayous. Um, you know, the Homa Indians have been uh, trying really hard to become federally recognized, and they're in pursuit of that once again. They do currently have about 18,000 people on the tribal rolls. So um, I'm, I'm married to Homa Indians, so I have five card-carrying children. Yeah. <laughs> they're card-carrying Homa Indians. 
You know, a lot of the Homa Indian people are very proud people. They're proud of their heritage. And in a time when, a, when a, it was difficult to be that way, because they spoke French, a lot of these children didn't even speak English until they went to first grade, my husband included, and he's about 65 years old. So, you know, in many of our lifetimes, we had a culture of people here who didn't speak English. Yeah. And when they got to go to school, they were required to go to Indian school. And I just think it's amazing. Not only do people in the country not realize that, you know, Homa Indians inhabited coastal Louisiana, there are people in our own state who don't realize it. There really wasn't a whole lot of emphasis on it in our Louisiana Studies, you know, history books. But they are here. They are for real. And, you know, many of them, you look at them, and it's unmistakable that they are Native Americans. You know, I'm I'm proud to know them. I am proud to have been accepted. And, uh, you know, Bayou cooking, a lot of that, a lot of that is not Cajun cooking at all. It's Bayou cooking. And I learned from my Native American mother-in-law in some of the best food you ever want to hang a lip over, Dale. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can attest to that. And You know, one thing, you mentioned it, but I think that's something that our listeners are just might be surprised. Uh, you mentioned the Indian schools. Uh, I, I don't think most people realize that the Homey Indians really were not integrated into the white schools until when? The late 60s, wasn't it? Very late 60s. Yeah. Yes, yes. The There was a lot of prejudice uh, against the Homa Indians, and they were discriminated against. They were only allowed to go to Indian schools, which were oftentimes associated with an evangelical reach of a church. Right, a mission um, group. Either a Methodist mm-hmm. church or a, or a Baptist church would uh, open a little school for the Indian children. And as a matter of fact, um, my husband was part of a group that were the first ones that were allowed to go to a public high school in 1967. And to some of us, that in America, that is just unfathomable. It's just hard to believe. But that is how it was. And his older siblings, they didn't go to school past eighth grade. Yeah. And if yeah. any of them did, if any of them did around that time in the 60s want a higher education, there was a little school in Homa they were required to go to, but they did not get a state-approved diploma. Diploma. They only got a certificate of completion. So these Native Americans were really, really discriminated against for many, many years, which really, to tell you the truth, not only did it oppress them, but it just made them cling to their homeland down here and their way of life that much more. Oh, I agree, I, and and I've as as you know, I've got to know some of them and visit with them, and and uh, uh, they're still, uh, and I think that is what has drawn them closer together, and and uh, and and keeping that culture alive is they is they feel like that uh, they're sort of who they are and what they are, and they're they're truly survivors. Uh, Wendy, let me let me ask you this: as as time's running down here. Uh, I know we've talked about a lot of the major concerns of the wetlands down there and uh, and the people. What do, you, what do you think, your own personal opinion, of, of what's what what does the future look like? To be honest with you, if, if I were being honest and almost, and it seems pessimistic, it's almost 
too little too late. But I do have to tell you that if anything can be done, I do have faith in our um, Coastal Wetland and Protection and Restoration Act, which has probably about 120-somewhat restoration projects on the ground. We have formulated a state master plan wherein those projects which are approved get, to say it simply, they get the most bang for the buck and they are most sustainable over time. Um, I serve on um, a parish government board, Coastal Zone Management, and we look at those things. We look at the areas of our portion of the coast that need the most attention, and we really try to put forward those projects that are going to get us the most help um, the quickest so that we can not only rebuild some coastline, but that we can sustain it. And we overlap projects when we can. Five years ago, um, the head of the, the estuary system that I greatly admire said, you know, heartbroken, we don't have 10 years. We don't have 10 years. But ultimately, those who are involved in restoring the coast and pushing for it are really, really pushing, ideally, for a 1950s, 1960s landscape. You know, we'll never get it back to what it was in 1900. No. But we settle for getting back to the 1950s and 60s, and we could live with that. And, you know, once we're elevated above the floodplain, and if the hurricane levees don't ruin what's left, we may be able to hang on till 2100. Uh, yeah, and and by you, woman, I I've, I certainly appreciate what you're doing and and what other people in South Louisiana are doing, and I'm going to do my small part that I can to get the word out and let people know what's going on. How can uh, how can people reach you and learn more about the Bayou Woman and your your programs and what's going on? Well, the easiest way to reach me and and uh, get involved and see more about life in Louisiana wetlands is to visit bayouwoman.com. It's as simple as that. And you can, there's a contact box on just about every page that will come directly to me as an email. You can write me anything you want. You can ask me any question you want, and I'll be glad to help you. And and if you're an adventurous woman and you want to come down and take a boat ride, go fishing, see some gators, I'm your gal. That she is, uh, listeners, and I would strongly recommend you visit her webpage. And, and certainly, uh, if, if you take the time, go to South Louisiana, learn about these cultures. You're going to see some amazing things, and, and you also uh, might open your eyes a little more to, to what's happening to, uh, to this great area uh, of South Louisiana and our wetlands, and, and perhaps you might be the one that comes up with a, with a way for us to do something. By you, woman, I sure appreciate you taking the time to visit with us today. Well, I enjoyed be, being here. It's always good talking to you, Dale. And also, I want to invite your listeners, if they don't want to take time to go to the blog, they can like the Bayou Woman page on Facebook. I'll be glad to see them there. And I'll look forward to your return trip, Dale. I'm coming down, and uh, we go going after those speckled trouts when I get there. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Dale. Thank you, Bayou Woman. This is Dale Stewart with Nature's Edge, and until next time, I will see you in the wild. Mm -hmm.